Father God, thank you that your word is living and active and so relevant for us today. Lord, we want to learn from you tonight. Please teach us. Amen. A reading from the Acts of the Apostles. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Then Peter began to speak, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, 
announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who are under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, may your word live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Amen. Well, tonight is the second in the series on the resurrection, resurrection hope. Last week, the truth of the resurrection of Jesus from among the dead. And if you've not heard it, I recommend it as we start the series. Very important issues there about the credibility of this claim. Tonight, number two, what it means for Jesus. What's the significance of the resurrection of the dead for Jesus? Now, this topic is important because in the New Testament, the meaning of the resurrection of Jesus is first and foremost something about him as we'll be finding out in our series uh, in the coming weeks. It's also about us. Next week, Justin will be speaking on being raised with Christ now in salvation. And a week after that, about us being made alive to God and living lives of Christian virtue. Then after that, three weeks ahead of us, that's three weeks to go, that's right, it'll be about our being raised at the end as part of the great harvest of resurrection in which Jesus is the first fruits. Then after that, the resurrection and the future of the universe, nothing less than that. But tonight, the resurrection and its meaning for what we say about Jesus. And that is paramount in the New Testament. As you may have heard me say last week, the gospel at times can simply be summarised in terms of the resurrection. As Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 2 verse 8, remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, a descendant of David, that is my gospel. However, as you approach this topic, there is a problem, and the problem is that most of you know it all already. You know how it's going to turn out, and therefore it's easier to say, oh, yeah, we have to, that's what I expected. And I'm going to make a challenge for you to try and feel the astounding nature of this by pretending for a while you don't believe it at all. Try and put back yourself in the mind of those who first heard these messages when it was first proclaimed and catch something of the freshness and energy of it. If that's possible, try your best if you can. I'll try and bring you back, I hope, convince you back to believe by the end of the, uh, my remarks. I want to start by saying that to grasp the real significance of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, you need to, we need to see it as part of a, a context of a larger and important story. Taking it just by itself as a thing that happened 
um, often can make it much harder to make sense of it. We've got an example of this in Acts 25. We find a Roman official not having a clue what it's about at all. In Acts 25, verse 18 and following, Festus, the Roman governor, is briefing Herod Agrippa II about one Paul who he had arrested or been brought to him, and he's not quite worked out what the, what the charges are. That's the way things worked in Roman days. You rested first and found the charges later, apparently. And so he's explained to Festus his confusion. I quote, when Paul's accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I'd expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus, whom Paul claimed was alive. I was a loss how to investigate such matters. To the uncomprehending Roman, the dispute was about some points of their religion and about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive, and that's it really. In its context, proper context, that dead man whom Paul claimed was alive means, means, all, all, means all the world, as we'll see. I'm going to explore the meaning by looking at two of the passages read by Ian of the book of the Acts of the Apostles where the resurrection is first proclaimed. One to Israelites, to Jews, and one to a Gentile. And we'll see something of the powerful message they've got to bring. Plus, towards the end, I'm going to also raise with you something rather weird about early Christians that we don't think is weird at all now, but was at the time. Let me take you to the first public recorded proclamation that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Peter's words in Acts 2. He's speaking to a crowd, trying to explain the commotion that had broken out in the neighborhood of Jerusalem during the Jewish feast of Pentecost. Pentecost is about seven weeks after the feast of Passover. And as it was at Passover that Jesus had been crucified outside Jerusalem, this is about seven weeks, a month and a half after Jesus had been, after his death. It's morning. About a hundred of Jesus' disciples are gathered in one place. It is a regular, one imagines, pre-work meeting. It was the first day of the week, but that wasn't a holiday like we've got. Back then, the first day of the week was a work day because we didn't change that until the resurrection meant we now have Sunday off. That's one of the implications of the resurrection. So they're meeting together, and suddenly, as you read in Acts, there's a sound of a violent wind filling the house. There's what seems to be tongues of fire on people's heads. People are filled with the Holy Spirit and start speaking, praising God in all kinds of different languages. It makes a racket and the crowd outside soon gathers to see what's happening. Some are astounded because although they all come from various parts all around the Roman Empire, probably gone to Jerusalem for Pentecost or some may have stayed there, they each hear the Galilee. Galilean disciples, by the way, Galilee was a bit of a hick town place for them, a bit like Queensland for us, right? The northerners. Um, but they were speaking in their own languages. They were astounded. Others were not as convinced. They made fun of them, saying, they've had too much wine. And that's the situation which is the, of the first public proclamation that Jesus had been raised from the dead and what it means. Peter began his explanation to the crowd, men of Israel and you who live in Jerusalem, with what I, to be, to be perfectly frank, is not the most convincing argument. 
Here's how he began. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Well, Peter may have thought that was convincing in first century Jerusalem, but I tell you what, the New South Wales police in Sydney don't agree with that. Well, just the other day, I, I come to church normally for the, my normal homeland is the morning church here in this place. So I'm driving to church around 7.30. I know you, 6 o'clock, will find that's astounding that one would ever go to church at that time of day. I understand that. I'm coming along and blow me down. There's a, there's a breathalyzer um, thing in, in Bridge Street. 7.30. A long time before 9. In fact, when I gave that comment this morning, a member of my congregation had, been breath had I think, been breathalyzed coming to church for the 8.30 service. And she passed, by the way. So I don't think that's the best argument, Peter. They can't be drunk because it's not yet nine. He has a much better argument up his sleeve. And that's what he does. He locates this strange event in the bigger picture of God's dealing with his people, Israel, which is part, of course, of God's even bigger picture of his plan to bless the world. It doesn't all just start with Jesus, of course. Um, that's why we have, I think it's two-thirds of the Bible before we even get to Jesus. Well, he makes sense of these strange goings on by informing the crowd, if I may paraphrase his speech, what has happened is not booze, it's biblical. Not booze, it's biblical. It's what the prophet Joel wrote about some 400 years earlier, uh, when he prophesied in the last days, there'd be remarkable action of God. He'd pour his spirit on all flesh and everyone who called upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I won't go into the explanation uh, anymore because that's not what interests us. What interests us today is Peter's explanation as to why this ancient prophecy had been fulfilled now. What's going on? Peter's explanation is, this is all the action of someone the crowd knew only too well. One Jesus of Nazareth. I'll pick it up at his words at verse 22. Fellow Israelites, he says, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. We must understand that Jesus was a public figure. There was a notoriety about him. And at least he looks like he's some kind of, some kind of prophet, looks like. Accredited by God miracles and so forth and they all knew that they all knew that about him Peter continues in a slightly darker darker tone verse 23 this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge and you with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross fair enough that's what they knew now comes, I don't know how much of the crowd, but some of the crowd deeply are seriously implicated in those events some seven weeks earlier. Then comes the shocking bit. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold upon him. Now that, that is the great and fundamental claim the early disciples make about Jesus. God raised him from the dead. And it's this that changes everything and is the substance of their message. And again, find what Peter does, he goes to the scriptures to explain what this means. I say Peter, although 
since Luke tells us that Jesus spent a month effectively, those seven weeks, between resurrection and the day of Pentecost, or maybe before the day of Pentecost, teaching his disciples from the scriptures about himself and those events. So I wonder whenever you see this kind of use of scripture by Peter or even the other others, it's not to say they've thought it up. They are, I think they are relaying to us some of the things they learn from the Lord Jesus himself, his understanding of scripture. Very interesting. Well, whatever that means, whatever that may be, what Peter does is he quotes Psalm 16, Psalm 16, ascribed to King David, which includes the line, therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices, my body will also rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, you will not let your holy one see decay. Okay, God, I will not die, my body will not rot, says, says David. But hang on, if that's what David wrote, there's a problem. David may well have been the Lord's holy one, his anointed king. But as Peter points out in verse 29, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried. And his tomb is here to this day. So he did. He was abandoned in the realm of the dead. His body did see corruption. So what do we make of David's confidence? You will not let your holy one see decay. Which holy one? Peter again, verse 30. But he, that is David, was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that God would place one of his descendants on the throne. Not, it's not about David, actually. It's about one of David's descendants, one of the sons of David. Verse 31. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah. Messiah is a Hebrew word which means the anointed one and kings of Israel were often called the anointed one. Hebrew Messiah, Greek Christ. They're the same word only just in a different word background. So we hear one, you see the other. The resurrection of the Messiah that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead nor did his body see decay. That's pretty clear isn't it? That it, Peter says <coughs> the promise of that psalm is about the Messiah the great son of David being raised from the dead. Who is that? Who, who fills that role? Verse 32, God raised this Jesus to life. There it is. And we are all witnesses of it. Peter says, David prophesied of one of his descendants. And now he adds, from to scripture, Peter adds contemporary testimony. God raised this, this Jesus to life the one you know about, that is. And we're all witnesses of it. Not just something weird happened, who knows what it means. No, what's happened is a profound significance in the context of scriptures was what happened. A Messiah, a man has been raised as Messiah. And it's all this which Peter says explains the, the weird goings on which fulfill the prophecy of Joel. As Peter tells him in verse 33, Exalted at the right hand of God, he, that is Jesus, has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and poured out what you see and hear. Three things, that, that Christ has been exalted to the right hand of God. Come back to that in a moment. He received from the Father the Holy Spirit, which is promised by Joel. And it's he who has poured it out 
at what you now see and hear. The last day's prophecy was in the hands of Jesus. In other words, it's, it's biblical, not booze. And Jesus of Nazareth, the one tested to you, the, the one you had a head in killing, raised from the dead as the promised Holy One who was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did anyone see decay. He's the one who's done it. Peter's coming to the climax of what he's going to say, but before he does, he cites a second psalm, also attributed to David. It's another promise to the Messiah. This time, a promise of complete victory over his enemies. Psalm 16 is a promise that he will not see death. Psalm 1110 is he will have complete victory over his enemies. Peter again, I quote, verse 34. For Moses, David did not ascend to heaven, did not ascend into heaven, yet he has said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies footstool for your feet. To sit at the right hand, it's the image of a throne room, and it's to share in the sovereignty of the sovereign. It's right here, the right-handed position. Sit there, and God says, until I make your enemies a footstool of your feet. Put your feet on them. That is, until I give you complete victory over all your enemies. So just as David did not escape being abandoned to the realm of the dead and seeing decay as promised in Psalm 16, neither did he ascend to the right hand of God as promised in Psalm 110. Not true of David, either of them. Who then? Peter comes to the climax in verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord, Psalm 110, and Messiah, Psalm 16. The actual wording of the sentence in the, uh, in the Greek language in which Luke's written, uh, Luke's written Acts, is actually more pointed than the NIV, which is slightly smoothed out, somewhat rough in the way which, in which Peter puts it. Literally, the word order is this. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, both Lord and Messiah, God has made him, this Jesus whom you crucified. Both Lord and Messiah, God has made him, who? This Jesus whom you crucified. I know it sounds a bit like Yoda, but I think it, it brings out the powerful contrast of Peter's conclusion. God has made him Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. And by the way, the word crucify is important because as we've, we've been noting in other sermons, crucifixion is the most degrading, shameful death of all. So what can we say from Jesus' words is the significance of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It means that Jesus has been made Lord in sit at my right hand, I'll make your enemies footstool for your feet. It means he's been made Messiah in the sense of you will not see corruption, death will not hold you. It means God has made him both Messiah, Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's the meaning at this point of the first proclamation. And although we don't have time to develop on it, for the listeners, this is shocking news. Shocking news. They had in effect, they were complicit in his crucifixion, but God had made him Lord and Messiah. 
talk about being on the wrong side of history. And they're appalled. They're, they're, they're scared, actually. What shall we do, they say? At least they've got the, the credit to recognise. And Peter's reply is as interesting as it is unexpected. Rather than write them off, and you could think possibly of what you might be tempted to say if you were Peter. Should have thought of that about, about that a month ago, guys. Or um, footstool for his feet, eh? Wouldn't like to be in your shoes. A lot of things you could say as the one they crucified is vindicated. But no, he offers them a way forward that shows there's something further in the meaning of the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 38, he replied, repent and be baptised every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. Just pause there. That's the NIV. I don't know why they've done this. They could have said Jesus Messiah because that's how they've translated the same word a few verses earlier. And that would have given us the link. See, they've, they've been told God has made him Lord and Messiah. And now they're told, be baptised. That is, wash yourself, call upon the name of Jesus Messiah. And what will happen? For the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, Lord and Messiah, is not only the one who gives the Holy Spirit, but also the forgiveness of sins. Which does fit in, by the way, to the last line of the Joel citation that Peter had made. That everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That was the end of the Joel citation. So it is significant, I think, that the very first offer of forgiveness in the resurrected Jesus is made to the very people complicit in his death. The very people complicit in his death are the first people offered the forgiveness in the resurrection of Jesus. That tells you something. Well, that's the first part of our looking at the significance of the resurrection of Jesus. That's Acts 2. In Acts 10, there's one other aspect. And uh, as I'll mention, something about the early Christians that was rather weird. In Acts 10, I'm looking from verse 37 and following, we find another of Peter's reported proclamations of the resurrection of Jesus. Only this time, it's not to a crowd of Israelites, but to the household of a Gentile, Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. You might say that so far, the conversation about the significance of the resurrection of Jesus has been limited to Israel. Now it's about to become something bigger. Although Cornelius is a Gentile, he's one of those who worships Israel's God, called a God-fearer. <coughs> Excuse me. And he also has some knowledge of the activity of Jesus. Both these times, the proclamation of the resurrection is to people who already know something about Jesus. Uh, well, Cornelius' language is a bit like the language of the crowds. His knowledge, I should say. Verse 37, Peter says, You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached. How John, sorry, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, how he went about doing good and healing all those who are under the power of the devil because God was with him. Same picture. This man, who looks like some, a great prophet of some kind, Peter adds what he has personally witnessed, including an astounding fact. He goes on, we are witnesses of everything he did in the country of Jews in Jerusalem. 
Now, what, what, what happened in the country of Jews in Jerusalem? Well, I'll tell you. They killed him by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses who God had already chosen. Us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. So Cornelius is confronted by a man telling him that he ate and drank with the resurrected Jesus after he'd risen from the dead. This is another example of the feature of testimony I mentioned last, last sermon about the crucial role of testimony in coming to understand the reason to believe the resurrection. Our question tonight, though, is what is the significance of this? What does this mean about Jesus? This time, Peter does not use scripture to make sense of it, as he did in the first of the two talks. He uses something much more immediate. What's more immediate? Verse 42, he, who is he? He is Jesus raised from the dead. He commanded us to proclaim to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. For something more immediate is the direct teaching of the resurrected Jesus. He commanded us to proclaim to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. The significance of the resurrection this time is not given in spiritual categories, but categories which in fact make sense in their own terms, which may be more appropriate when speaking to a Gentile. And, excuse me, come off. And, um, I've lost my point, I can't can't do that one. Oh yes, it's obvious what I'm saying. And, and, And the significance is this, he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. That is, there will be a judgment of the living and the dead. That's news. That's news. In Acts 17, Paul tells the, tells the Athenians, God has appointed the times of ignorance, God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day in which he'll judge the world. There it is. That's news. There's a simple implication of the resurrection of Jesus. There'll be a judgment. And secondly, the one who'll do the judging is the one who's been raised. And if this is given assurance by raising Jesus from the dead, that's a very significant implication of the resurrection. And as at Pentecost, the offer of forgiveness from the resurrected one is also present. For everyone, verse 43, all the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins in his name. The direct teaching of the resurrected Jesus. Now, that bit I mentioned earlier where the early Christians were weird in something we don't think is weird at all. You may find this hard to believe, but the early Christian movement, which proclaimed the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, had a particular feature that was unique in the ancient world, other than, of course, proclaiming the resurrection, which also was unique. And what was unique was they had a message, a mission for everyone, for everyone, for young and old, for Jews, for Gentiles, for Greeks, barbarians, men, women, slaves, free, everyone their message was for. 
everyone and anyone. As strange as that may seem to us, in the ancient world, no religion was like that. Except possibly that this is thought there may have been some Jews who evolved this, but not scholarships divided. No one did that. That's a really weird thing to do. As one historian put it, and I quote, no pagan seriously dreamed of bringing all man, humankind to give worship in one body to one God. None. They had to live and let live. As long as you didn't upset my gods, you gave your gods. And yet, unlike anything else we know in the ancient world, the Christian movement had a mission that actively envisages target audiences, all people everywhere. That's an odd thing we now take it for granted. Why? The reason for this remarkable and in, for some people um, annoying feature of the Christian faith is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's a direct consequence. Not just in the obvious sense that if Jesus had not been raised, there'd be nothing to have a mission about, but in the more stronger sense that the resurrection, A, establishes Jesus' identity as Messiah and Lord of all, and B, it is the resurrected Jesus himself who commands and creates that mission. It wasn't something they thought up. He commanded it. That's why there's this unusual character of the Christian movement in the first century. And not just here in Peter's recorded words in Acts 10, if you look at the Gospels, what do you find in three, the three Gospels that end properly, Mark sort of stops, cuts you off in the middle, but the three that go somewhere, you find the same thing, different language, the same thing. The resurrected Jesus commanding in Luke 24, thus, this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. That's Luke 24. Or Matthew 28, the last words of the gospel almost. It's the resurrected Jesus again. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And John's gospel, when Jesus appears to the 11, minus Thomas, we heard last week, as a father sent me, so I send you. So then what does the resurrection mean for Jesus? That he has been raised as Lord and Messiah, Lord of all. That he is the judge of the living and the dead. That everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And that as the resurrected Jesus himself proclaims, commands, these truths are to be spoken to everyone and anyone so that they too may come to terms with this profound reality. Which leads me at last to talk about you. Because you're included. Last week, you may remember, I, I raised the issue of what would it be like, what would be the case if in fact Jesus had not been raised, a point that Paul raises as a thought experiment in 1 Corinthians 15. This evening I want to flip it. I want to flip it. What would it mean if, in fact, he had been raised? Well, you've heard what it would mean. There's a judgment of the, of the, of the living and the dead. He is the one to do the judging. There's forgiveness of sins to those who call upon him. He is Lord and Messiah. So my point to you is a simple one. You'd better be sure he was not raised 
if you're going to ignore him. You'd better be sure he was not raised from the dead. Because if he was raised from the dead, all these things I've been talking about tonight are, the, are, the, are true. It's as simple as that. And therefore my final challenge to you is, is, is the straightforward one. To make peace with him. To call upon his name. To acknowledge him as Lord and Messiah. That you may find in him 